What's up, everybody? Nick Finzer back today. I'm really excited to share with you what we just recorded, and I'm just recording this intro now to tell you what we did. And this that was Marcinkowitz Mouthpieces, their trombone rep, Graham Middleton, decided to join us uh, this week, this Friday, for our weekly Ask Nick show. And uh, not too many questions for me, lots of questions for Graham. Uh, we talked all about Marcinkowitz Mouthpieces, kind of where they fit in the kind of spectrum of all the mouthpieces all over the place with Bach and everything like that. So you're going to find out a lot about the mouthpieces. I'm super excited because now I am able to sell them directly to you. I know sometimes people ask me where they can get the 6ES, which is the mouthpiece that I play from Marcinkowitz, and they can't find it. So now you can get it directly from me at nickfinzer.store or go down into the description or the comment section below and you can find that link. So happy practicing. Hope you enjoy the mouthpieces and I hope you enjoy this Q&A with Graham Middleton from Marcinkowitz Mouthpieces. And I am joined today by none other, none other than Graham Middleton of Marcinkowitz Mouthpieces. We are here today to talk about a bunch of things, most notably the mouthpieces, kind of how you can get your hands on them, and the fact that uh, I'm really excited to be able to offer some of these mouthpieces now uh, through my website and through me, and so it's going to be cool. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. But for now, I want to turn it over to Graham so he can introduce himself and let us know what his role is over at Marcinkowitz. Yeah, awesome. Hi, guys. Uh, so I am a trombonist based in the Portland area. Uh, one of my, like a lot of professional musicians, I have probably like five or six jobs. Um, one of them is working at Marcinkowitz, uh, where I do a little front of the house, a little back of the house. Uh, I do... A lot of customer questions and shipping and receiving type stuff. And then I also do some lathe work back on the CNC lathe and a lot of the buffing and finishing work, uh, prepping things for plate. Um, nice. Yeah. And so it's been an interesting job. You know, it was a family business for a long time. And right now I'm the only person that works there without the last name of Marcinkowitz. Yeah. Um, which, which is kind of weird sometimes because I get a lot of questions like, oh, you must be Joe's son. And I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, no, no. Uh, Not me, so, but that's, this guy over here is. Um, yes. So how did you get into working with mouthpieces? Like, you know, your trombonist. How did, yeah. you, how did all that happen, man? So I was in, so I did my undergrad at Northwestern. I studied with Michael Mulcahy doing like a, a classical trombone degree. Mm -hmm. uh, and I got into my senior year and I was like, oh crap, what do I do for like a job? <laughs> and so I like went through this real like uh, laborious process of like, well, um, you know, like, what can I do that's related to music um, and still have some flexibility to do performing? And I was like, well, there's, like, instrument repair and publishing, uh, manufacturing. And I started, like, calling around to different places uh, and doing some, like, interviews and just trying to get some information on, like, how to get into some of these industries. Mm -hmm. uh, and it turns out the first one I did was for, uh, was at Shelky Music. Uh, there was nice. trumpet manufacturer, trombones, uh, mouthpieces in Chicago. Uh, and I went there to just do like a tour and ask some questions. And it mm -hmm. just happened to be the same week that the Shelke family sold their business to the, the current owners, uh, Andrew and Julie Nauman. Uh, and they offered me a part-time job. Uh, and so I came in and worked a couple days a week, mostly sweeping the floors and asking lots of questions and uh, being inquisitive. And so I worked there through my senior year of college part-time. And then the summer afterwards, I worked there full-time. Um, they hooked me up with the folks out at SE Shires. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And so then I worked for Shires for a couple of years, uh, building hand slides and trombones and all that cool stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was a pretty cool period in Shires history where it was like, 
probably 10 people worked in that shop at that time. So everyone did a little bit of everything. Um, yeah. And so I sort of, at that, from that point on, I've always had a little bit of instrument manufacturing in my sort of portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, so after I worked at Shires, I went and got a master's degree because I was like, oh, I want to be a performer. Uh, and then as soon as I was finishing my master's degree, I was like, what do I do for a job? <laughs> and then I got a job working at Shelke. Went back to Shelke and worked there for about four years uh, in that sort of period before they acquired Greenhoe. Um, and they were starting to get a little bit into the trombone game. So I was mm-hmm. working there. Um, yeah. And then a few years later, after a couple more moves, uh, we ended up out in Oregon because my wife and I would just love it here. Um, and then Marcinko was just an obvious choice because it was, you know, a sort of established brand. And they're in this like little bit of a transition phase in between generations. You know, at this point, uh, Joe Marcinkowitz had a pretty severe stroke about three years ago at this point. I see. I see. Uh, so he's, so he's mostly retired. Uh, his oldest son runs the business now. And, uh, yeah, I've been working there and sort of being his like, uh, sort of sounding board and right hand guy and sort of picking up the slack. Uh, Yash is a brilliant, uh, machinist and is one of these guys that like, will see something that's broken and be like, Oh, I can fix that. Yeah. Where I would be like, no, 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 we have to buy a new one right away. Yeah, He's like, no, no, I can fix it. I, I can fix that. Just like, all right, well, and which is super valuable in any sort of like manufacturing environment where you can't necessarily, you know, buy a new lathe every couple of years, right? You have to have this sort of like fix it and maintenance kind of background. And that works super well. Man. Yeah, I'd be useless. I'd be totally done <laughs> for. Uh, I just, yeah. I just play trombone. I can't handle it. <laughs> Could you give people kind of an overview of like, What's the vibe of the mouthpieces as kind of compared to the quote unquote regular kind? Yeah. And so maybe I'll, I'll start with a little bit of the history too. Sure, like, yeah, yeah. so Joe's biggest career thing was that he played with the Kenton band for a few years um, and sort of did a large, um, I'm trying to think probably about two or three years he was touring with the Kenton band uh, and sort of was pro player, uh, had a little bit of a face injury while on tour and decided to move back home, uh, mm-hmm. was in LA for a bit. Um, sort of was trying to like fix his face and figure out like what exactly he had done to himself, you know, playing eight shows a week for <laughs> a couple of years. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's sort of how we got into this like tinkering mindset. Uh, he started hanging around with Bert Herrick, who was sort of one of these, uh, uh, original, uh, customizing and repair guys in LA. Okay. Um, uh, and so he started sort of learning the craft from Bert Herrick, um, and a lot of his sort of design concepts and elements came from Bert, which is really cool. Because Bert was one of these people that would, you'd go to a shop, he'd make you a custom mouthpiece, but he never had like uh, a line of mouthpieces. This is sort of more of a, a modern thing. Back in the day, it was just like there were Bach mouthpieces, there were Schelke mouthpieces, and then there were like a couple other small oddballs, you know, maybe like your, your Parduba or your, your Rudy Muck or like a couple of these like uh, smaller brands. But in terms of like nationally distributed brands, they were more like regional brands, you know. Um, but in terms of like national brands, it was like Bach, Shelky. Yeah. That was it. And if right. you either played your Bach or you played your Shelky. <laughs> um, and so Joe started doing this thing that Bert would do where he would, in his garage, he had a lathe and he'd sit down and like someone would come and like sit in a chair in his garage and he would make them a custom mouthpiece and sort of see what they were playing, listen to him play and say like, you know, everyone comes in with like, you know, I'd like something that's a little more open or I'd like something that, you know, I mean, the comic one you get a lot is like, I'd like something that plays both high and low and with a big sound, but not too dark. <laughs> right? Yeah, right, right. Joe learned a lot of these sort of tricks of the trade from Bert and like eventually 
one day he's in his garage making a mouthpiece for Herb Alpert. Herb Alpert came in and, uh, you know, they spent a couple hours together. Joe made him a mouthpiece. Herb loved it. And he's like, this is great. Can you make me another one of these? Can you make me more of these? Can you make me a horn? And Joe, of course, being uh, very entrepreneurial, was just like, yeah, absolutely. I can do that. Not being 100% sure he could, but I figured he would learn how to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was sort of like the start of Joe and Herb Alpert with a business partnership that started more with music products. You know, Herb put in the seed money to sort of build that business. And uh, for about a decade in the LA area, uh, they worked together and had a partnership and um, eventually dissolved. But, you know, Joe still had a lot of these sort of designs and elements of the business. Um, he and his family moved up to Oregon. And uh, yeah, just sort of kept running the business and making horns, making mouthpieces. Mm-hmm. And this was sort of the decision after Joe had a stroke was where we stopped making the horns, but continued making the mouthpieces because mouthpieces are one of these things that the process for them is much more streamlined. Horns are one of these sort of unique sort of, there are a million steps in the process where, you know, if something goes wrong at one step, it takes a long sort of process to kind of smooth things out. Mouthpieces mm-hmm. are a little more like your machine, it has the code. Uh, we run CNC legs, uh, and so we do single point machining on all these mouthpieces. Um, so once you have sort of the designs and the machine, it makes mouthpieces, which is great. You know, I discovered these mouthpieces kind of by accident. I mean, and it was like a, a time when I just was, see, I'm not a really that much of an equipment like guy. I'm kind right. of like, get the thing, stick with the thing. And if it, it works and like, if there's a problem, it's probably me, not the piece of equipment. That's kind of my mindset. And I know like there's also the mindset of the right tool for the job. And I'm like mm-hmm. I'm totally with it if that works for you. But um, so I first found these mouthpieces, I think it was a 10th or 11th grade in high school. And I ordered like, I was like, all right, I'm going to order 25 mouthpieces, I think, from like music and arts because they had like at that time, like a, you know, you could return them with no restocking Mm -hmm. or anything at that point. And so I was just like, let me just try all this stuff. And I play played all these different ones, you know, Shilky for a little while. And then I was like, oh, this Mm -hmm. this is kind of too big, kind of tubby for for jazz. You know, there's some questions that come in while we've been talking. Uh, so people asking like, you know, what for people that change equipment, what's good, what's good for jazz. And then other people say, what's a good mouthpiece uh, for playing this guy, this guy, Henry is from Ghana. But, um, you know, so I first kind of got acquainted with the mouthpiece by accident and then I, I just kind of stuck with it. And so what I play is the 6E dash S mouthpiece. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think it was necessarily intended for <laughs> as like this is the mouthpiece for jazz players uh, necessarily. But. It's kind of what I gravitated towards. Maybe from your perspective, uh, you could talk a little bit about like what might make a good match of the Marcinkowitz pieces to like, yeah. whatever, a small or medium bore trombone. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the one thing we like talk about a lot with our mouthpieces, both trumpet and trombone uh, across the range is efficiency, right? We just want to have something that efficiently does the job for you. Uh, our mouthpieces tend to be a little more lightweight than a lot of mouthpieces. If you sort of look at the mass of them, uh, they're a little lighter weight. And because of the weight, so weight does one thing in a mouthpiece. It sort of darkens it and provides a little resistance. Uh, and resistance isn't a bad word, right? A lot of times we think about something being tight and it being bad, but like, uh, so weight is a variable of resistance. Um, and because our mouthpieces are a little lighter weight, we're actually able to be a little more efficient in the cup design mm. and sort of these like throat and backboard specs. Um, and really the variable that sort of goes through the Marcinkowitz mouthpieces and the way the trombone mouthpieces in particular are organized are by cup depth. Um, I know so many of us are tied to the rim diameter and how the mouthpiece feels on the face, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
Nice. Is that the six E W S I sent you? Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, yeah. And so the cup depth really makes a lot of difference in sort of how efficient a mouthpiece is, right? How far you're going from the end of the chops, the buzz to the bottom of the mouthpiece, Hmm. a deeper mouthpiece, right. is going to give you more of this like wide pillowy, uh, sound, a shallow mouthpiece gives you a lot of like this, uh, electricity and sort of front to the sound. Um, and it's just finding the right balance point. And so you're talking about, you sort of played a bunch of mouthpieces ended up on this six E S, um, which is really cool. Cause like, if you go through the Bach catalog, right, you start off maybe on a 12C, then maybe you get a 7C, right. and there's a 6.5AL if you need something a little bigger. But if you need something bigger than a 6.5AL, there, there aren't a lot of options, right? You get to like a 5G or a 5GS, and those mouthpieces tend to be uh, a little too deep, right? Those are more designed as like uh, the G cup is more of sort of an orchestral bowl shape uh, to a mouthpiece cup. Um, and what you'll find, particularly in the mouthpiece, you ended up with the 6E and 6ES variety. Uh, and for us, the 7G is another one sort of in that range where it's like something in between a 6.5 AL and a 5G. Mm. And I think that's where a lot of players will kind of find themselves, right? Because we want a little more room on the chops for them to, to vibrate, right? right? Some of us can't play small rooms. And if you can play a small room, great, right? Um, but as we sort of have moved to bigger equipment over time, right, we're no longer playing these sort of like... 485 bore horns like a, a you know 2b or a box six that they played kind of back in the days when Shelky and Bach were designing these mouthpieces like we have most of us play sort of in the sort of like 500 508 525 bore kind of stuff um and so I think we have a handful of mouthpieces that really fit well into that range uh including the one that you play which I think makes really well to like a, a king 3b uh, King 3B plus that kind of range of horn. Is there like a science behind like the weight that them being like a little bit more lightweight than maybe a Bach mouthpiece or definitely a Shoki or something like that? Right. Yeah. And so like our standard blank shape, a little bit of this tulip shape, right? Not a lot of weight up by the rim, lightweight, so that you lose less vibration in the mass of the mouthpiece. If you can think about, I don't know if you guys ever played a nice heavyweight mouthpiece. I know I particularly had a Monet phase where I wanted this like big dark, full sound, and I ended up with a really heavyweight mouthpiece. Uh, and they feel good on the face, but what you lose is a lot of projection of the sound, right? That vibration you're creating up front tends to not transmit through the end of the horn. Uh, so I tend to feel like lighter weight blank just gives you more, not only in sort of the overtone spectrum, that like quality of vibration you get just has more electricity to it. We do a, a couple varieties on it. So this is our standard one you'll see with almost everything. There are a handful of mouthpieces because we do this single point machining where we don't actually work from blanks. A lot of manufacturers you'll see will work from, they'll create uh, a rough exterior shape of a mouthpiece, and then they'll use uh, what's called a form tool to cut out the interior shape. So they've got a specific tool they use to cut the inside shape of a mouthpiece. Uh, We do this thing uh, on CNC called single point machining, uh, where we're actually using a program to cut the interior with a a form, uh, with just a a standard cutting tool um, instead of the form tool. What it does is gives us more variability in terms of the shape of the mouthpiece we make. Mm-hmm. Um, so like something like our Jigs Wiggum mouthpiece, the ET 1.7, has a little more mass to it, a mm-hmm. uh, little more weight up by the rim if you compare it sort of the standard one. Right? Remember this guy? A little lighter up by the rim. The Wiggum carries a little more weight up by the rim, uh, and we make up for it in sort of the, where the bowl shape is. So, uh, so we use that, that blank exterior in our Jigs mouthpiece, in our 5G wool mouthpiece. 
Uh, and we've actually started making some of our other standard models with that weight as well for people that like just a little more mass up front. And then sort of our third sort of variety of it, right? We do these concert hall mount pieces. Uh, I like to call these the uh, the non-heavyweight heavyweight. Uh <laughs> So it's like a heavyweight mouthpiece, but we sort of have gone through and picked out and cut a lot of ridges in it. And one of my cutaways I use as a practice tool is one of these heavyweight mouthpieces, but I've milled it in half. But you can sort of see how the ridges are cut to different depths, right? It's not, it's actually specifically balanced to kind of feel like a standard weight mouthpiece. So if you take one of these concert hall mouthpieces and actually put it on a scale next to a, a similar cup size of a shelking mouthpiece, they weigh, um, just actually they're a touch lighter than a shelky mouthpiece. Uh, so this is like the non-heavyweight heavyweight mouthpiece where you get the sort of uh, coloration of a heavyweight mouthpiece, but you don't get the resistance and the kind of restriction you get from a heavyweight mouthpiece. I wouldn't say it's a science to it. It's all sort of, um, mm -hmm. when I talk with people about mouthpieces, we talk about the ignition point, right? Where you start taking the buzz and you're trying to put the buzz into the instrument, resonate the buzz as musical sound, right? Um, and the analogy I use a lot of times is when you're, you get a rental car for the first time and you go to step on the brake oh, yeah. and you have no idea where it is. The car, you're going to jerk to a stop the first time you drive someone else's car every single time. Right. And a mouthpiece is a lot like that sort of where that ignition point is and where the balance is. Right. So you go to blow into a mouthpiece. Um, and the thing, sometimes a lighter mouthpiece is going to have, you're going to stop a lot faster. Right. Cause that energy is transferring really quickly. Mm -hmm. A heavier mouthpiece, you're going to push down on the brake and you're going to think you're almost hitting the floorboard, but you finally stop. Right. It's just the ignition point of where that sort of vibration creates buzz and sound can vary a lot depending on the weight of the mouthpiece. Interesting thinking about all of this. Because ironically, when I like test out other things or like play um, like side by side, like quote, like heavier or lighter, I usually find that like the lighter weight mouthpiece actually has a bigger sound for me or like more <clears throat> resonant to me. Yeah, and color, right? Yeah. Like you just tend to get a wider spectrum sort of like sound, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's funny, people say the opposite, right? So Bach Market, it's their uh, heavyweight mouthpiece as a megatone, right? right, right. Uh, and it's it, it for me, it's actually a narrow tonal spectrum. You get way more fundamental. And that be, might be what people sort of lock in on. It's mm -hmm. like the fundamental is very strong, but you lose a bit of the overtone. Um, but yeah, I like that about lighter weight mouthpieces. You just tend to get this sort of shimmer and like uh, expanded color. One of the things I want to show you too uh, yeah. is like my other buzzing cutaway tool. This is, you can see how lightweight we make the blank. Oh yeah. So like very, this is one of our bass trombone mouthpieces. So it's super thin, but like uh, it's, you know, very little wall thickness. We try and like maximize as much as we can, like not having that weight there as extra resistance, right? So like lightweight cup is like, very little wall thickness to the outside of it. So like you're, you're not losing a lot of that vibration in a, the mass of the mouthpiece. What is the uh, differentiation with the S? Yeah, I've got one of those diagrams to pull up. So this is just a, a quick CAD drawing. Uh, this sort of machine language we tell the CNC lathe how to make a program. Uh, and these are both of our standard backbore reamers. So the blue line you'll see is the rough shape of our standard backbore. So if you see something from us like an 8H or a 7G, uh, without the S, um, that blue line is roughly the shape of that backbore. And then for the mouthpiece you play, Nick, the S backbore um, is a slightly more open taper. So it starts a little narrower, mm. but ends a bit wider. So what you end up with is, it seems like a very subtle difference, right? And you're just looking at like two lines that are thousands of an inch difference. But in terms of mouthpieces, this is what we're talking about. It's like the width of a sheet of paper makes a huge difference in how we respond to a mouthpiece. So that, that backboard, the S backboard starts a little narrower, but ends more open. It tends to have a more 
um, full sound, a little more resonant, a little more wide in terms of the, the tone color. And so a lot of times if someone's looking for just a little less, little less resistance, we'll end up going with a sort of S back or um, on a mouthpiece. Yeah. If people are like trying the mouthpiece, maybe like for the first time or something like that, mm -hmm. is that, um, do you recommend starting with the S or the non, the non S? The regular? Uh, it depends how you know yourself. A lot of times. So what's super helpful is like most players have already tried a handful of mouthpieces. So we've mm -hmm. like gathered data points from them, from their, their particular mouthpiece journey where they're able to say, Oh, well, you know, I played a seven C for a long time. I had this Doug Elliott set up. I liked this about it, but didn't like this about it. Right. So a lot of players come with sort of these. And if you, if you come, if you're coming as a complete newbie and have no data points, that's almost perfect. Right. Yeah. Cause that way I'm just able to like, we're able to throw some options at you and say like, all right, a B better, worse. Right. Um, I tend to go start people more with the S back or if they're playing a little larger horn, if they're playing like a 528 style horn, hmm. um, Sorry, 525. If they're playing a 525 horn, I'll usually start with the S back or 508s can kind of vary a little bit uh, depending on if it's so for me, um, something like a box 16, which is a dual bore, I'll tend to start them with a little smaller. If they're doing the 16M, I'll tend to put them on the, the S back bore. It just the back bore can help balance a mouthpiece to the instrument. And if we think about the range of bore sizes we play as like small bore trombone players, uh, it's nice having a couple options and not a one size fits all. So Sure. Yeah. Normally a bigger backboard with a little bigger horn. Okay. And I mean, that makes sense. I mean, I've only played the yeah. same one the whole time. And I've always <laughs> been, like, even when I was playing a 508, I used to play a 508 Edwards for a long time. But, okay. But, you know, I still use the same, that same mouthpiece. And I was still always, like, trying to go, you know, bigger. So it kind of makes, eventually that's why I went there. But, you know. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. Someone that plays like a 7C and he wants to maybe double on bass trombone, is there anything in your guys' line that might be a good solution for someone starting to double? Yeah. And it sort of depends like what kind of bass trombone player you're trying to go for, right? Um, yeah, of course, yeah. And so we've got a couple, you know, I tend to start people that are looking to double on a smaller end of a mouthpiece. Mm -hmm. um, for our catalog, the what we had marked as a one and a half G uh, was a mouthpiece that Joe had originally designed with George Roberts. Uh, I think it's a really nice, like tasty mouthpiece, especially for single trigger bases where you're looking to do some, um, sort of cover that whole tonal palette it's the way George did, right? Like he wasn't just a playing low notes and giggling kind of bass trombone player. He was okay. like a complete musician that played the bass trombone, which is what's so awesome about him. Right. Um, yeah. And so that's, that's probably my favorite. And that's like the first place I'd start most people that are looking to kind of double and just know that like, as you switch into bass trombone, it's, it's an adjustment, right? Especially like seven C to bass trombone. There's no, um, there's no mouthpiece that has a 7C rim on a bass trombone cup. You're never, you're not going to find that sort of magic hybrid, right? You need to kind of, uh, my, my advice is just jump all in, go for it. As someone that spent most of my career playing tenor trombone, and then probably in the last two years has like switched to playing a lot of bass trombone, I can just say, just go for it. It's going to be fine. You'll, you'll, you'll be safe. Yeah. Yeah. For me too. That's all, what it's always been. I, I mean, I've mostly only played bass trombone when it's been like on a Broadway show or something where it's like, I have mm -hmm. to basically not because I don't like bass trombone just because, uh, you know, yeah, my skill set is more of a, you know, improviser than a bass trombonist. That's for sure. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So just pick up to just pick one and just go for it. And yeah. And I think that the GR that uh, one and a half G is like the, the right way to go. It's, it's versatile and just works great on most horns. What's your yeah. uh, go-to doubling bass trombone? I've always liked those, you can't find them anymore, but the King Duo Gravis uh, for doublers. It's good for doublers. Yeah. 
Yeah, my situation was that uh, the bass trombone position with the Portland Opera opened up, mm-hmm. and I was like, well, I'm living in town. I'm, I really want to play with this group. I'm just going to like dive all in and learn bass trombone. So I got a, a Bach 50B3O and Greg Black 1 and a quarter G, and I was like, I'm just going to, this is what like 90% of orchestral bass trombone players play. I'm just going to like learn to play this, and it's going to yeah. be okay. <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah. And you're doing that now, yeah? Mm-hmm. Or well, right yeah. now. But yeah, in, in theory. In yeah, in theory, I'm doing that, and I'm playing bass trombone with the Eugene Symphony. In theory, so well, nice. eventually, yeah, eventually that'll all come around again. Okay, and because Marsikowitz is in somewhere else. Yeah, Oregon City. So that's uh, a little south of Portland. I thought it was on the box. It's not on the box. <laughs> Used to be. Used to be on the. We box. moved. We moved uh, a year and a half ago. Oh. Uh, we moved out of the, the facility in Canby where we've been making a lot of horns to a smaller facility in Oregon City. Mm. which is great because it's like it's nice and streamlined for mouthpiece making maybe you could explain a little bit the numbering system and like how to find what maybe right. the equivalent is so people could like check out what's going to be maybe the best starting point yeah absolutely so is roughly that, speaking is that chart going to be helpful should i pull this up or no yeah that's that's super helpful okay. yeah so what we get in marcinquist mouthpieces is that the number shows you the relative cup depth so something in like the model four is a very deep cup, right? You can see this 1.120 inch measurement, right? And the higher number are gonna have shallower cups. Um, 0.806 in the 15. Um, And then for some of them, we have this notation afterwards of a letter. And the letter like G, E, H, F, uh, those indicate the throat sizes. Uh, If you ever look at a drill index, uh, something like an E, is a 0.205, I guess it shows it right here, 0.205 of an inch. Uh, an F is gonna be slightly larger. A G is gonna be a little bigger than that. And so what you'll notice in a lot of these mouthpieces is that the letters and the throat sizes will vary a little bit depending on the depth of the cup. Mm-hmm. So that's mostly sort of the formula for it. Uh, one place we get in a little bit of trouble is uh, how does some of these numbers kind of overlap with other manufacturers? Right. You know, a lot of times we'll see something like a 6E and we'll be like, oh, well, that must be like a box six and a half L. Uh, not so much. Right. Uh, it, is, it is, in our series, it's the number six depth with an E throat in it. And Joe was so, even if you look at our trumpet mouthpieces, he was always fixated on the cup depth being the more important variable for how we sort of sound on a mouthpiece, right? And then mm-hmm. one of the things he had sort of learned from Bert Herrick was that rim can be independent of how a cup shape is. Um, and so I, it's funny because so many of us as a player, we interact with the rim and we think, oh, this must be the most important part. I play on this size rim and I only play on this size rim. And that's one thing is you start going through and playing some of our mouthpieces, I'll encourage you to be more flexible in what depth mouthpiece you play instead of what rim size you play. Know that the rims are sort of chosen to work well with the cup depth and shape. For the most part, right, we're talking about thousands of an inch difference between uh, a rim diameter, right? right. You're like, no, 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 I can only play... But if you happen to be one of those people that thinks like, I really want a six and a half AL rim, something like our 8H, there are two mouthpieces we make that I think have all really similar characteristics to a six and a half AL. Um, I think that this one that we marked 8H deck, six and a half AL, um, is our 8H rim, uh, our 8H has a very similar cup shape to a six and a half AL. But in order to make that a more balanced mouthpiece, you'll notice that the rim is significantly wider. The inner rim diameter uh, is significantly wider than your standard 6.5 AL. So our 8H has a lot of the playing characteristics of a 6.5 AL in terms of cup depth, throat, 
back core. Um, but it has a little different rim shape to it. If you're a player that likes the rim on a six and a half AL, but wish it was a little, little brighter, more responsive, uh, our model 10 has a rim that is very similar to a six and a half AL, but a cup shape that's more efficient. Um, one of the things we talk about in our cup designs really frequently is what we call a CV design, uh, where the cup shape at the top starts as uh, a C and ends as a V um, towards the bottom. Let me pull up an image of the 7G cup. So this is a, a CAD drawing of the language that we use to communicate from the computer to the CNC lathe of what we want our 7G mouthpiece to look like. And so you can see sort of in the cup design, right, starts off a little more of this undercut from the rim going down. And then as we get lower, it cuts into a V shape. If you look at something uh, like a Bach, you know, 7C, uh, more of that line is going to come straight down and then end in, actually, the reason it's called the C cup is that the cup is actually shaped like the letter C on its side. Oh, um, for sure. Yeah. So this ends in a little more of a V shape at the bottom. Uh, and then one of the things I really like about this mouthpiece and a couple of the other ones in the series, uh, the throat entrance, right? A lot of times, if you sort of dig your pinky finger down to the bottom of your mouthpiece, you can feel how sharp a lip it is between where the cup ends and where the throat starts. Uh, one of the things I really like is sort of the smoothness in this design as we go from the bottom of the cup into the throat. So a softer throat entrance, um, this sort of soft V at the bottom, real common in our mouthpieces. 6E is gonna have a really similar rim diameter. I don't know if you can remember from that screen I had up before of the 7G. The rim shape is gonna be real similar. Right. Uh, 6E is a little deeper cup. You can see how we pulled this down a little farther before we finally get to that V. And again, a nice, similar uh, th soft throat entrance. And each one of these throat entrances is sort of designed to the particular throat size. So uh, the previous one we were looking at, uh, the 7G has a much larger throat, uh, a 0.266 throat. Uh, 6E is a narrower throat, uh, 0.250. But we're always making sure that these throat entrances line up properly. Um, to the throat sizes for that particular mouthpiece. So here's something. I know you guys have this lathe and everything's supposed to be exactly the same. <laughs> but the mouthpiece that I have been playing does uh -huh. not necessarily feel exactly like the one that's the new one of the same model. Did it change? Has this evolved? Or is it just natural wear and tear? There, there are a couple things that go with it. So the, the code that we're sending should be exactly the same. Mm. Uh, it's the same same design, same CAD design on the same lathe. There are a couple variables that change, and it just goes to speak of how like sensitive we are as players to like these like very small changes, right? right, right. So I go the difference probably between your mouthpiece and one that, that we just made is going to be that I would have done the finishing work instead of someone that did the finishing work 20 years ago when, cause yours is an older Burbank model, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. And so it's, it's just the subtle little bit of handwork that goes into like that final polish stage that you, uh, make it nice and shiny so you can prep it for plating. Mm -hmm. Um, so the cool thing is that we've been upgrading in a little bit of our, our tooling and we've recently got an optical comparator so that we can actually take a mouthpiece like yours, which is of a particular generation where maybe the handwork was a little different than it is now. Right? And we can actually sort of see these subtle differences. And maybe we have to adjust the code slightly bit. So we can use our optical comparator, take a mold of your mouthpiece, then take a scan of it, and it'll print out uh, the small variations that we need to do um, compared to what we're currently making. So there are some subtle differences for sure. Right. 
the other thing that can change over time too is your interaction with plating. New plating feels like soft and like slippery and it just doesn't grip the same way as like your nice worn in a mouthpiece, right? Where you get a little bit of grip. Uh, there, I won't recommend this to everyone, but if you're, uh, there are some times where you can take a nice, like fine piece of, uh, steel wool or a very mild abrasive, right. Uh, and actually like, you know, roughen your mouthpiece a little bit. If you're feeling like you're just having trouble, like slipping on that new silver, um, and you just want a little more grip, like there, there are ways to sort of like toughen up your mouthpiece. I know I'm trying to remember who it was. I think it was Bobby Shue would talk about every time he got a new mouthpiece, he would like stick it in his pocket with like change for like a day and sort of walk around and like, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and there, there are going to be subtle differences, but, sure. you know, we're doing our best in terms of, like, uh, machine accuracy, uh, machine wear, and sort of new tool, like, to, like, make sure that we're making as consistent a product as we can. And we're sort of taking um, samples of all the handful of mouthpieces. Every batch of mouthpieces we make, we go and we're using this new tool, the optical comparator, to take a mold of it, compare it, and make sure that's lining up to the, the archival copies that we have. We do have uh, archival copies of these mouthpieces that are, like, the originals from the not only the Burbank shop, but the Glendale shop, which was the first shop that Joe had in California. Oh, wow. um, yeah. So we're, we're doing our best to make sure that as legacy goes on, that we stay as consistent to the original designs as possible. You know, we've been testing out maybe some other mm-hmm. variations kind of on the mouthpiece. Yeah. And just like, just those little variations and seeing how they all kind of really do make a big impact, especially how it feels, you know, yeah. it's like really interesting to, to see. Because, yeah, this week I've been trying out those other two that you sent me. Yeah. And uh, trying to see how it compares. But it's always – because I also was comparing it to the 6E, the new 6ES that you yeah. sent as well. And just like, oh, man, all of these are different. But um, <laughs> Yeah, and, and like I said, we, we're doing our best to try and, like, keep those consistent. We're, we're sort of doing our due diligence to try and, like – Oh, of course. Because that, that's been the reputation with so many large-scale manufacturers for so long, right? Uh, right. You know – in some of we haven't really talked about we have an Dorsey series of like custom mouthpieces Joe had made for artists over the years. Our trumpet our trumpet catalog was jam packed full of like every like player of impact in LA in the eighties was sort of like there and had a custom mouthpiece in the line. Yeah, but like so many of in our trombone line it was just like our ET four is the Lloyd Elliott mouthpiece where it was like he brought in a specific New York Bach seven C he had that he wanted a copy made of. Ian McDougall mouthpiece ET two was of a particular 11C, a Mount Vernon 11C that Ian had that he wanted a copy of. And that they're different than the current modern productions of those mouthpieces. And, you know, that that, that, that goes back a little bit to the fact that Vincent Bach was, you know, hand-making mouthpieces for the longest time. Um, and people find these kind of magic uh, New York Bach mouthpieces that everyone wants copied, and no one can quite seem to copy with the, quite the same magic. Um, but, you know, that's uh, those are the things we're aiming towards, right? Uh, consistency and like recreating things that have worked. Um, I know the thing we've been working on lately are a couple uh, reproductions of those 70s era King mouthpieces, the uh, oh. M21 and the M23. Uh, I've got probably five or six of each of those, and we've started taking some those optical scans of them and think that probably pretty soon we'll have a, a pretty good uh, Marcinkowitz reproduction of some of those. Oh, nice. Uh, so that'll be cool. Yeah. What about the JJ mouthpiece, the 11M? Uh, I have an 11M too. You know, I haven't dug into that one. I only have one of them, so I, I want to get a handful of them before I jump into being like, "Well, this is the copy, right?" Sure, sure, yeah. And that's the thing. That's the thing is like, as you're trying to reproduce a previous era of mouthpiece, you want to have several examples of them so you can be like, "Oh, well, this one is the outlier," you know. And maybe JJ played on one that was an outlier. Um, True, but yeah, I feel like that's usually the case. It's like, yeah, that he played this horn or this mouthpiece, <laughs> but it was like you know one of a kind. <laughs> Right. And who knows how they were modified or sort of changed over time. Right. And the one thing we talk about with horns too, is like, and it happens with mouthpieces too. 
someone will play a mouthpiece for years and they'll actually wear it in in a particular way. The way they set it on their face, the way they kind of play, the way they put pressure on it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the way your lip vibrates and has this, uh, if you have a little bit of, you know, stubble microabrasion, you're able to sort of like wear in a mouthpiece a little bit over time. And that's that's the thing I think we're trying to, as we go forward, be sensitive to, to like, you know, excellent players like you that have played our stuff for a long time, um, but might have like a slightly different version of something, you know, after many years of good service. Um, yeah, I know. Cause I, I also have really acidic body chemistry. Oh man. That must be the question you get most about your mouthpiece is because it's this like jet black mouthpiece. Uh, <laughs> Where'd you get that black mouthpiece? I'm like, oh, I'm, just I made it. <laughs> I'm just too lazy to clean it, man. That's all. My favorite thing going through your like YouTube catalog too, is like, you can tell sort of like, you know, roughly what age you are by how black your mouthpiece is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cause I got a new one. Well, there was the original one and then it became too worn and it was like all the brass was shining through. And I was like, yeah, I got it replated. And then I was like, the, oh, it's over. I can't use this. Anymore. It felt really different, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I bought a new one. And then from the new one, that's the one I'm playing now. The, the Whatever yeah. that was. I forget exactly when. It was when I moved to New York in school. Okay. So I had the first one for like 10 years and then this last one for the last 10 years or so. Cool. But. Yeah, because my teacher, Steve Teray, he always used to talk about putting your mouthpiece in the same place every time. Yeah. Like line, yep, yep. line up the letters, you know? And so, like, you would wear it down, like, in one spot. And so my finger would, like, wear on the cup a little bit. And Yeah. That's really cool. And Steve, uh, so when I was working at Chelky, we would do some work for Steve, and he's got that particular grip set up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Man, I just can't imagine, like, the kind of force. Like, if you're holding a horn like that, you're probably, like, really, like, he's got digging the, into it. He's gripping, yeah. man. Like the most trippy experience is to go to his house and like try to make the gripper with him or like make a new one. Yeah. Like, it's like plastic and he just will just do it in the basement and it'll just get all like fumes everywhere. And you're just like, <laughs> and you're trying to fit it to your hand. It's crazy, man. He's in, he's in that case. I love that guy. Mm-hmm. Where's the best place for people to be able to try Marcinkowitz? Cause I know sometimes they're kind of hard to find. Something. Yeah. My friend Nick here is going to start selling some mouthpieces through his website. So that's like, uh, a good place to reach out and look for them. Uh, there are a couple other retailers. So what I've been doing in COVID times is we have this set of demo mouthpieces that lives in our shop. Mm. We are not having customers into our shop. Um, so what I've been doing in uh, small batches is sort of mailing out some of these demos to people to try out at home. Um, you know, the one thing we ask is that you cover the shipping costs, but honestly we can ship about four trombone mouthpieces for less than $10. Um, so like the shipping cost isn't too much. Uh, and I just ask people to reach out to me through my email address at work. Uh, mm-hmm. You can do gram at uh, Look up the spelling of Marcinkwitz. I know it's a tricky one. Yeah, it's hard. Uh, we talk about it all the time. I, um, always, I always spell it wrong and I'm tr- I should know how to spell <laughs> it right now. I got the box sitting here on my desk. And I just spell it <laughs> if you're interested in trying stuff out, uh, I have a small batch, like I said, of I've got one of everything at the shop mm-hmm. uh, and a demo kit that I can send you to try out. Um, I'll ask you pension. I'll put the all the info down below. Yeah. And people can find your email address. They can find the website, the Mercedes yeah. website, so they can see all the details about all the pieces. It's number one, because right. there's a lot of info there. I've put up this on the screen a couple of times, but um, you can see all the, the measurements. Right. Um, definitely look at it for yourself because I don't know the answer. I will send you to Google. <laughs> I mean, I know yeah. I have a good idea now of like some of the rough equivalents, but um yeah and how, and how they compare but anyway so you can get in touch with graham um and he'll be happy to to work with you on finding a good way to get him to you now with covid and after covid yeah because i yeah. remember like they used to be at you know 
whatever it was, woodwindbrasswind.com right. or something. And yeah. And it's sort of, it's sort of as uh, I mean, it's one of the things we talked about in the music industry, retail industry as well is like, there are fewer shops that you can go to and try stuff. Um, music and arts has acquired a, a large a range of small music stores. I was actually just going through and updating our dealer list and like yeah. the number of small mom and pop stores that have become music and arts. And we like music and arts. They're a great retailer. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but so many of these stores have sort of become under the music and arts umbrella uh, that it's it's shocking. Yeah. Um, so if you if you have a particular store that you like and you, you want to support and that you would like to see our products in, mm-hmm. let us know that as well. We really do want to help keep supporting these uh, these sort of community based uh, music retailers that you know support your band boosters program that support um, music in your schools. Right. Right. That's that's a vital part of it. So like um, definitely, if you've got a retailer in your town that you want us to work with we're happy to yeah i have a a a knack for finding stuff that like people can't find like uh, the mouthpieces the horn i play they don't stock anywhere so (laughs) i guess i have a a knack for these kind of things apparently all that information i'll put it down below but if you want to find mine i have listed on my site now the 6e-s is available there so you can go and order it through there if you want to try or if you want to try the whole range you probably want to get in touch with graham because he can hook that up or if you don't know where to start right Right. if you if you play a particular mouthpiece let me know i can trans i i I speak more syncwitz i can translate for you and i speak uh played almost everything out there at this point so i can i can translate most things into a more syncwitz mouthpiece for you if you'd like yeah and i had i've had a couple of students that played either like a seven C or a six and a half an AL. And then they kind of tried some of these in between mm-hmm. models and they ended up um, actually yeah. digging them a lot. So, and they're playing on them now. So um, they are pretty comfortable uh, and they get a good sound. At least this is my biased opinion, you know, but right. they're easy to play. But uh, was there anything that uh, I missed Graham that you wanted to make sure that people knew? I think, uh, I think you chip checking in with us, you know, like, You've been plugging our website a little bit. We're actively working on a website update. I think some of the, the diagrams I was sharing earlier of sort of the mouthpiece designs are things that we're going to start listing on our map, our website, you know, including some more options in terms of like exterior options. You know, we did silver plate as our standard. Uh, we've got a real nice gold plater that we work with as well, um, which is also an option if you're into that. Uh, maybe working with some different materials, sort of uh, some Lexcan, some stainless steel. We've started to once we've like sort of reached this COVID era where we've caught up on all of our back orders finally, that was the January accomplishment was that we were like finally had all of our back orders shipped out, oh, which nice. just felt really good. Yeah. Uh, but then you start looking towards the future. So I think we're looking to incorporate some new ideas. And um, I think another one of the cool things we have sort of in the pipeline are a lot of this old tooling from Bert Herrick. Bert Herrick used to make custom lead pipes for people. And I think that's mm-hmm. one of the things we're going to start digging in as well. It's like we have all the tooling that Herrick can be used to make lead pipes. So we're probably going to start doing that again oh, nice. next year as well. Yeah. Have you guys experimented? I know some, there's other companies out there that maybe are um, experimenting with things like bronze and titanium. And yeah. You said stainless steel. Stainless steel is one that's like the cool thing about steel is that it has a similar density to brass. Uh, you know, it feels really different, responds differently on the chop, but in terms of like um, machining and the, the sort of metallurgic qualities of it, it has a similar density to brass. So uh, that's a cool spot. Uh, every time you start working in a new material like uh, bronze or titanium or even in nickel, uh, you re you tool up with specific tools that are made to cut that and like make a nice surface finish on it. So one at a time, do you guys have requests for stuff like that? I've sort of been curious about bronze stuff. Hmm. Um, just seems like it has like a, a cool quality when you hear some other people play it. Um, yeah, it's an interesting sound. I don't know if it's like the best sound for me, the, the bronze. 
let's yeah. say, let me just say I am super biased. So <laughs> my, my my opinions about things are not universal by any means. Yeah, I'm like slowly becoming a steel convert. I think the first couple times I played a steel mouthpiece, I was like, this is just weird. It doesn't have like a resonance that I like, but I think there are certain certain tricks to how you can work with it that can kind of make it a, a little more appealing. And the durability is a nice thing too. Like the same thing we're talking about, like micro abrasions on your, your brass mouthpiece sort of like over time making it slightly different, right? Like right. your face definitely isn't going to like wear away a piece of surgical stainless steel over time. What equipment you're playing on tenor and bass? A good question. All right. So I'm primarily uh, a large board tenor player. Uh, and, you know, one of my other like uh, side hustle things is like in addition to my job at Marsinkowitz and my playing work that I do with Portland Opera and the orchestras I play with in the area. Uh, I also teach at George Fox University and Clackamas Community College. I'm like jumping all around. And I, I also have my, gar- my garage set up as a customizing shop for trombone. So I, I play on uh, a Bach 42 that I've customized. It's got a Shires valve on it and uh, my own sort of setup on it, lead pipe that I made. And I'll use a lot of times a modified version of the Marsinkowitz 4, which is roughly like a 4G. Uh, on my bass trombone, uh, I have a modified the 50 BO that I won my audition on. Uh, I've since modified and put a couple of the the Olsen instrument ovations valves on it, uh, which has those nice bearings, super smooth. Uh, and then I go back and forth between using the the EBT one, the the Bill Reichenbach that I've opened up a little bit as well. Um, I think that's a nice sort of like one and a quarter G type mouthpiece. Um, has a lot of nice center on it. I really like that mouthpiece for a lot of the stuff I do. And then small bore, you know, like a lot of large bore players, I have a small bore. Uh, and when I play it, I tend to overblow it. So I try and like play on a little smaller mouthpiece so that I can jive in on it. So I think like the Model 10 works really well a lot of times for me on sort of most like 500 bore horns. Hmm. Uh, I've currently got a Con 48H that I'm working on um, that nice. I play a little bit. And I like that with the Model 10. I think it works super well. Is it old, an old one or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was one of those things. Uh, someone on, yeah, I, I I fell in love with Facebook Marketplace and like oh, buying right. horns and just like, you know, I bought a that con constellation for two hundred bucks. I'm like, yes, yes, this is perfect. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna play the heck out of this thing. Yeah, nice man, con constellation. Yeah, that's killing. Yeah, so that's mostly what I do. You know, alto trombone. I kind of have two different sounds. Like sometimes I want to have like a a broader orchestral alto sound that I don't stick out too much compared to tenors, and then mm-hmm. sometimes I want to play. You know, more of soul literature, so I'll have a, a smaller. Uh, I really, really like uh, the Marsinkwitz, the ET7, uh, Dave Steinmeier model. Okay. I think works as a superb alto mouthpiece. Um, or if you're just kind of playing like a small horn lead kind of solo ballad style, I think that's a great mouthpiece for that too. We did touch on it, but we didn't like go down the rabbit hole there of like other players, and Dorsey players. Like you yeah. mentioned like Dave Steinmeier from the Airmen of Note, um, yeah. formerly of the Airmen of Note, now teaching at the University of North Florida. And you mentioned Bill Reichenbach and right. Jigs, Jigs Wiggum. Yeah. And the interesting thing to think about these are like, these are mouthpieces from a time period in certain people's lives. You know, Jigs has gone on to have a long career. And then when I think Joe made this mouthpiece for him, it was really early in his career. Right. Um, um, yeah. And so like we have, uh, I think I mentioned the ET4, the Lloyd mm-hmm. Olliott mouthpiece. Um, this roughly based off of a, a New York 7C who had... Um, the ET3 is a Charlie Loper mouthpiece, another sort of like Titan of the LA scene. Right. Um, and he's is like a little deeper version of a 12C. It's the 12C rim on a slightly deeper cup, um, which again, nice, nice all around playing for the sort of style he was doing for a while. 
see, we have a Mick Gillette mouthpiece too of uh, Tower Power, trumpet player that played some trombones. So his mouthpiece is roughly based off of a, a jet tone mouthpiece he was using. So it's one of these like really steep wall of the rim and then it just goes straight down and then it's got like a kind of like strong V at the bottom. It's it's a it's a unique shape, right? It's not one I highly recommend, but there, in, particularly in our region, like Mick had July, uh, retired to the Oregon coast. So there are a lot of people that sort of worked with Mick later in his life. Yeah, yeah, last, I'm leaving out uh, Ian McDougall, oh, uh, yeah. Canadian trombonist, um, um, another super great ballader. And like, uh, his is roughly like an 11C. It was based off of Mount Vernon 11C that he brought to Joe. Oh, okay. uh, and, and so when you look at our chart, you'll see that we have uh, a model that's listed as a 12C, an 11C, and a 7C. Those are not necessarily copies of modern versions of those mouthpieces. Those are mouthpieces that we've taken uh, some of the, the data points that we have from these endorsing mouthpieces. Like I was just talking about, like Lloyd Oyot's mouthpiece was a 7C he brought to Joe. It's going to have different specs than a modern one. But if you like a vintage kind of 7C sound, you can check out either Lloyd's mouthpiece or the 7C that we make. Um, same thing with the 11C. Roughly has the same specs as the... Uh, Ian McDougall mouthpiece. Ian's mouthpiece has a slightly smaller throat on it, so it's a little little tighter up front um, than the 11C. Um, and I believe that the 7C Lloyd's mouthpiece is a little more open. And the other cool thing in Lloyd's mouthpiece, too, is that it is, it is shorter. It's like a quarter of an inch shorter, because I think he was a player that played off the bumpers and first for a slide vibrato. Ah. Yeah, so he probably had like a chop tuning slide and a short mouthpiece so that he could like have a little extra wiggle room. That's super cool. So all of that stuff, I know it's all on the website, so you can go over there. And there's way more like trumpet stuff too. So if you're a trumpet player. Way more trumpet stuff. Yeah, that's that tends to be the bulk of our business. But me being a trombone player, like uh, I sort of I sort of see the my brotherhood out there looking for uh, yeah. looking for more info. So I'm I'm happy right. to, to talk talk the slide. Were you guys trying to make trombones at one point? Was that a thing? We did, yeah. Absolutely. There are probably about twenty five Marcinkwitz trombones out there. Um, it was one of the later things that Joe was doing, uh, right before he had a stroke. Um, and like, like I said, we sort of temporarily put that instrument manufacturing stuff on hiatus and we might come back to it at some point in the future. But I think for now, like the, the thing we're doing is just getting the mouthpiece stuff really like, uh, um, locked in and, and a little bit modernized. I think, I think as you sort of look through our stuff too, you know, like we have a big old table that you put up a couple times and that's not always the most like relatable version of, a information right so yeah. we're sort of looking at like how to how to better sort of communicate like what we have to offer uh in terms other than just uh numbers on a data sheet so uh, like i said i speak more Sankowitz. if you ever need a translator uh i'm happy to offer my services and uh amazing uh yeah a lot of good stuff is sort of in between i think that's the one thing I'll, I'll walk away saying is like there's a lot of good stuff in our catalog that is in between a six and a half al and a 5g if you find you need a little more room but still want a commercial you know jazz trombone sound like there's, there's a ton of stuff we have that we can sort of lock in with you. Amazing. Well, Graham, thank you so much. I don't see any new questions, so we'll kind of wrap it up for today, but I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. And awesome. I know I really appreciate you talking to the audience about all this and thanks for your time this morning. Yeah, no problem. Man. Yeah. Thanks everyone. Thanks everybody. We'll catch you next week.